Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. This week, we have an interview with Alex Skolnick, who at age 16 joined the band Testament, which would become one of the bands that defined the thrash metal scene in the Bay Area in the late 1980s. He developed his virtuosic guitar playing by studying with the legendary Joe Satriani and by listening to bands like Kiss. With Testament, he toured the world with some of the leading metal bands, and then in the late 90s, he changed his life completely. He moved to New York, started studying jazz at the New School, and formed the Alex Skolnick Trio, which is still playing today. We discussed his fascinating career, his new podcast, Moods and Modes, and what he still wants to do musically. After the interview, you'll hear Alex play Unbound, Gymnopedia, and Beth by Kiss. You can see videos of Alex's performance on our show page, which is linked in the show notes. And you can find a Spotify playlist based on the episode in the show notes as well. Before we get into the interview, a quick word about Sunset Lake CBD. I've talked before about how Sunset Lake CBD gummies are part of my nighttime routine. We also have some of their coffee and their tinctures. They all provide clear-headed relaxation. Try some today and get 15% off your first order. Go to sunsetlakecbd.com and enter the promo code PPFL15. And that link is in the show notes. And now, here's my interview with Alex Skolnick. All right, I'm here today with Alex Skolnick. Hey, Alex, how's it going? Okay, man. Good to see you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining. We have a, a lot of stuff to talk about. I was really interested to to talk to you about several things, which we're going to get into. But first, I have to go all the way back and ask you if you have a first musical memory. Gosh, that's a good question. Um, there are a couple songs that come to mind. Uh, one I don't actually remember, but I am told <laughs> that I used to sing along with Beatles songs before I could even remember. And I was singing along with Here Comes the Sun. And I would point to the sky and say, Here Comes the Sun. (laughs) That's awesome. The Beatles come up so often in these conversations, I guess, just because they're the most influential musical group ever, maybe. But Yeah, well, they're one of the few that stayed with me the whole time. When they come on now, everything must stop and we must pay respects. You don't grow out of the Beatles. You don't, really. Was that music playing around your house a lot when you were growing up? The Beatles were the one uh, group that I sort of had in common with my folks. My folks were a little older than most of my friends when I was born. They were in their 40s. So they had grown up on you know, Sinatra and Perry Como. <laughs> they were like ahead of the Woodstock generation. They weren't part of that. But they did like the Beatles. They appreciated it, especially the later Beatles. So I heard a lot of that. But also, I think one of the reasons it probably comes up so often is that it's very, um, well, it's very diverse music. I mean, there's world music from the, the Ravi Shankar influence to... You know, what would become hard rock with Helter Skelter to, you know, almost like gypsy jazz with, you know, Michelle. But also there were songs that any child could understand, right? So Here Comes the Sun is a perfect example. Hey Jude, you know, the refrain is na-na-na-na-na-na-na. And um, Yellow Submarine, 
which even had a cartoon. And I remember they used to air the cartoon on Saturday morning. So that helped suck me in. But the first time I remember on my own latching on to music was uh, 50s rock. And it was a very similar thing. You know, it was these sort of childlike ideas you could understand, right? Like I remember um, Splish Splash, I was taking a bath. So I remember that made me feel better about having to be put in the bath. (laughs) You know, I'd hear this great song by Bobby Darin or Rock Around the Clock. You know, and it's, it almost sounds like it could have been on um, Sesame Street, you know, Mm -hmm. but with such great music. So it was really like that era of music where I remember being conscious and hearing it and just being really excited by it. Do you remember an album, like a first album that really grabbed your attention as you were growing up? Well, it was definitely Beatles albums. Rubber Soul and Revolver were the ones that first got me. I remember all the classic full-length LPs, you know, Abbey Road, Let It Be, The White Album. I really set the bar high, too, you know, like... Was that before or after you started playing music? Was this all before? This was mostly before. So you had an early attraction to music before you started playing. Do you remember how your love for playing music or guitars or however you first kind of discovered that you could do what you were listening to? Yeah, I mean, there were a few factors. One was I had an older brother who's like seven years older. So he was in his teens by the time I was approaching 10 years old and he was starting to get together with friends in the backyard and jam on songs. And eventually he, he was in some local bands that I would go see and I would, you know, I wasn't old enough to get into these clubs, but I got to witness the process of club bands pretty early on and see what, oh, that's a sound check. That's what, you know, and help helping carry gear and and I just loved it I just loved the the whole process of it and uh, I started with I guess that you know then I was like a preteen but a couple years earlier I started really getting into guitar you know when I discovered Kiss I've heard very similar stories from musicians over the years and my story isn't that different I wasn't very athletic I was never interested in baseball cards and one day these group of kids on the playground were gathered around and they're looking at cards that I I thought were baseball cards but they were kiss cards (laughs) kiss had come out with cards at that point yeah one of many brilliant merchandising ideas and I saw it I saw these these, and I was just taken in because it was almost like uh I'd already again I already loved the Beatles with their guitars But I also liked, you know, Spider-Man and Batman. And this was like a combination of comic book characters and musical instruments. And I was hooked. And when I first heard the music, I might have been Destroyer or Love Gun. One of those. I I just loved the music. It was very relatable to 50s rock. Especially when you take a tune like Rock and Roll All Night, which is kind of mm-hmm. like a tribute to classic rock. Yeah. So, I, yeah, it just hit me right away. And that made me want to play. That and, you know, the love of the other music and then you know, beginning to hear local concerts, seeing my brother playing in club bands. In 2013, you wrote a book called Geek to Guitar Hero. You described yourself as sort of awkward and introverted and misunderstood by your family and then discovering Kiss. And it it did remind me actually of like kids getting lost in comic books. Did it feel like you were discovering superheroes that you could then become at some point? Yeah, I related to it because... You know, unlike the characters in the comic books, these these were real people. They were personas. 
But I knew that underneath they were actual human beings. And even in the comic books, even though they're, you know, their alter egos don't really exist, they're still they're based on these very normal people. Characters that are nothing like the superheroes, you know, Peter Parker, you know, Bruce Wayne, right? They transform <laughs> the Incredible Hulk. You know, it's these people you, you would never guess in a million years. And then in real life, at, at that point, we still hadn't seen Kiss. You know, they were so mysterious because you didn't know what they looked like at that point. They were, they were very good at you know, keeping their identities hidden. I mean, we knew their names, which weren't even their real names, but they were really good about sort of protecting their, their image outside of them. You could never do that today. You didn't have a cell phone with a high-end camera in everybody's hand back then. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, it would be pretty easy to figure that out now. Exactly. So they had this mystery to them. Being that age, it was, you know, intoxicating. Do you remember like an early concert that you went to? Because it sounds like you were going to see your brother's band. Do you remember any early big concerts you went to that like really blew your mind? My first concert was Kiss. I was 10. It turned out to be the last tour with the original lineup before they, they reunited in the 90s. So I was really lucky to get to see that. And uh, yeah, that just blew my mind. And it was also a, a, con a Kiss concert sort of set the bar for concerts. <laughs> so I was pretty spoiled after that. Can you describe like the pre-show, the parking lot, the crowd, anything you remember from that first Kiss concert? Because that's a pretty unique concert to, to walk into as your first show. Oh, yeah. I just remembered, you know, never seeing so many teens and 20-somethings in one place. Uh, I'd never saw so many loud people before. I remember in the parking lot. Because I was, I was a kid. I grew up in an um, upper-middle-class neighborhood in Berkeley. Most of my friends' parents were... like my, my folks were university faculty. My father's a professor. So other kids were... Uh, their fathers were professors or lawyers or uh, doctors. And so everybody's well-behaved. So I just remember being in that parking lot, and it was like Lord of the Flies almost. Right? It's like <laughs> people are loud. They're chasing each other. They're throwing things at you. It was just like this um, bastion of uh, breaking the rules and like anything goes. Yeah, blew my mind. So if I fast forward a little bit, I think, to age 16 when you joined the band that would become Testament, and you really helped define this genre of music. And I, I just want to hear a little bit about what that Northern California scene was like when you were bringing this band together and when this band was kind of growing in the early days. Yeah, well, there were many local bands, as I found out. There was a lot of cross-pollinization between the bands, even different genres. For example... There was a local band called Blind Illusion, and the bass player at one time was Les Claypool. He would go on to start Primus. Blind Illusion is like a prog metal band. There was another band that was sort of like, um, I wouldn't say black metal, but they were sort of a precursor to black metal. You know, they, they wore leather and just fake blood and... You know, extreme imagery. And anyway, the guitarist in that band was Larry Lalonde, who would join Les Claypool in Primus. 
Wow. And it wasn't that unusual. So my brother was in a band, one of his bands, probably the most noteworthy at the time. It was called The Freaky Executives. And they were like a blend of sort of ska and funk. They had horns. It was a little bit like, you know, elements of Tower of Power, elements of uh, Madness and the English Beat. And, you know, an interesting band. So the guitar player at one point was in the band Exodus. And uh, he had replaced Kirk Hammett, who had joined Metallica. Oh, that was so. By the time I was aware of all this, yeah, Metallica was already they already had their first album out. They had relocated to the San Francisco Bay Area, and there was already a, a scene. And I was just sort of picking up on just how many bands there were and how many different types of bands there were. You know, so Kirk Hammett joins Metallica. He's replaced by Mike Mong, who ends up in my brother's band. <laughs> the freaky executives and it's just this weird small world so mike ended up he was the guy that was in like every other band too you know he had good equipment he had a van he was you know that he was that guy and you know we had a few people like that but uh mike ended up i think he he was only in exodus for a short time and he was just a little more uh happy in the freaky executive so then but during that time he there was a brief period of time he was in both bands so i got to know exodus and the the guys from exodus would would come to these shows and uh, i got to know them so then i started going to see their shows and exodus being ended up being this very influential band in the san francisco scene and, and exodus had been started by kirk hammett which is, it's kind of amazing how it's all tied together and at this point, I'm about, I don't know, 14, 15 years old. Um, I'm studying guitar with the guy that everybody studies with in the Bay Area. His name is Joe Satriani. Yeah, I want to ask about that as well, because this is all, it's a lot to come together at once. Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing lo- looking back on it. And Joe was like the local legend. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to these shows. I'm, you know, not old enough to get in, but... Since I know the guys, they either sneak me in or my a couple friends of mine from high school, we would, you know, carry in amplifiers and <laughs> no questions asked. We were in and I saw so many shows that way. So the band that I would end up joining was a frequent support act in the Bay Area. They sort of emerged and they were getting support slots from Exodus, from Slayer in one of their early shows, uh, Megadeth, one of their really early shows. And, you know, I was still in school. I, I didn't catch any of these gigs. You know, I, I would catch Exodus when I could, but somehow I'd always miss them when the band Legacy was opening for them. And Legacy was the band that would become Testament. But I kept hearing about them. And a friend of mine kept saying, oh, you have to see this band. This band's great. Until one day I, I heard the guitar player left the band. And um, I'm telling them they should hear you. And that was kind of how that all started. I was 16. I was in 11th grade. <laughs> wow. And uh, right away, they, they said, sure, join the band. And um, I had shows like on the calendar right away. And that, that's a pretty good incentive. to. Start. No, I, you know, I was always serious about guitar, but suddenly my seriousness kicked into overdrive. Cause, okay, because now some of these same venues where i've seen shows i'm going to be on that stage that was exciting was that before you started studying with joe or had you started studying with him and then built up to joining this band i was already studying with him yeah in fact i remember talking to him about this like should i even do this you know 
the band is already, they're all older. You know, they were all in their 20s already. And and he thought it would be a great thing to do just for the experience of it. Who knows where it'll go? (laughs) So it's amazing um, how, how important that band ended up being. But at the time, I didn't know. And I'd been studying with Joe for a little over a year at that point. And the way that came about... Um, I had studied with a few different artists. It hadn't occurred to me to play lead guitar until I heard the first Van Halen record, which is also a, a story. I'm not the only one with that story. And then yeah. it was all over. It's like, okay, I need to work towards playing guitar like that. I don't know <laughs> what that is. I don't know how he's doing that. It was still this big mystery. Like, how is he doing that? How is he getting that sound? Now. What fingers is he using? Like, it sounded impossible. And um, there were a couple really good players with, like, strong lead guitar chops that were sort of in my brother's circle. And I studied with each of these guys. And I had heard that they had the same teacher. And that teacher was Joe. But at that time, he was just called Joe. And there was always this mystery about him. (laughs) Like, I heard he was really intense. And he would make you work really hard on guitar. And in Berkeley, California, the, the work ethic isn't quite like the East Coast. You know, it's kind of, you know, there's this whole laid back mentality. So some people weren't into that. You know, I met people who just thought, yeah, he makes you work too hard. And, but but I, I thought it sounds exactly like what I need. <laughs> I need to work hard. He sounded like, you know, the equivalent of the strict classical piano teacher, which as, you know, electric guitarists at that time, we didn't really have that. So suddenly, oh, here's somebody that plays that role. This is like the, you know, the very intense classical piano teacher, except he's an electric guitarist and he can play like Alan Holdsworth. (laughs) Was he intense? You know, he, he was totally cool as long as you did your work. You know, so I, I knew guys who he just wouldn't teach. He just, he wouldn't let them come back after like the second or third lesson. But no, I, so I, I knew that going in. Just, yeah, made sure to just work as hard as I could. It's cool that he was compelled to just help a lot of young guitarists get better, you know? He didn't have to spend his time doing that. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's kind of amazing when you look at how many players he taught that would end up as professional guitarists. You know, yeah. I mentioned Larry from Primus, and he had the time slot next to mine. We would hang, and then um, there were others that I didn't know that ended up in bands that would be really big in the 90s, mm-hmm. like Counting Crows and Third Eye Blind and groups like that. Testament is is credited as one of the bands that brought this genre uh, of thrash metal along, along with Metallica and Anthrax and Slayer and Megadeth and a couple others. Yeah, well, Metallica became this juggernaut, but originally, yeah, they were sort of at the top of what's considered thrash metal. Were you drawn to that specific type of music for any reason? It sounds like you kind of grew up around it and were brought up in it, but was there something about this style of music that really drew you in? I liked the energy of it. At the shows. The shows were always high energy, very intense. So I, I liked that. Um, I didn't think that was the type of band I would end up joining. Partially because as far as listening, I was more focused on guitar stuff. There were times where it would overlap. For example, even though it's not thrash at all, but UFO is hmm. considered, they're like an honorary thrash band. 
everybody from that scene loves UFO. Even though when you listen to it, some of it's very melodic and there's power ballads. But the guitar playing was incredible. You have Michael Schenker, early Scorpions with Uli Roth. So a lot of that music had its place and it was very much respected by the thrash metal world. But so was punk rock at the same time. You know, there was a lot of love for, you know, the Ramones, stuff like, you know, the Bay Area, the Dead Kennedys, GBH, Fear. Yeah, a lot of the thrash people liked all that stuff as well. And the one band that really sort of brought that together was Motorhead, right? So Motorhead would have this crowd that was like equal parts punk, equal parts heavy metal. But a lot of the guitar, a lot of it was more garage rock. Motorhead, for example, um, certainly like early Slayer. So guitar-wise, it wasn't really where I was coming from. But, you know, at the same time, we all liked Ozzy. Ozzy was another one. Ozzy with Randy Rhodes was just incredibly influential. So, so I was more influenced by the guitar of Eddie Van Halen, Randy Rhodes, uh, Michael Schenker, Uli Roth, and also Yngwie Malmsteen, who was like this Haganini of guitar. <laughs> he, he came out and his music was like deep purple on caffeine. So I was listening to all that and I thought I'll probably join a, a band with the guitar more like that. Like, I guess you could call it power metal. Um, but there really wasn't much of that in the Bay Area. That was more of like a European sound. A lot of the guitar players that were a few years older that played melodically, they would end up doing more glam metal. Groups like Rat were starting to get popular, which had great guitar playing. Uh, I just could never see doing that kind of music. I just, the, the dressing up, I just couldn't. <laughs> I understand. That's a totally different direction for sure. Yeah, eyeliners and scarves and Aquanet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was ridiculous. So when the opportunity to join uh, Testament came up, I just thought, you know, let me try squeezing my um, sort of Randy Rhodes, Van Halen. I guess by that point, I'd, I was influenced by Satriani as well, having studied with him. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try squeezing that into this. It's a little different. You know, it's like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole or whatever the analogy is. But it, it ended up uh, with something different. I mean, it made yeah. it helped make the band sound different. It uh, gave me a different platform. And it was a way to be heard when most guitar players with my influences were doing more typical rock and roll stuff or, or glam metal. What was it like being on tour at a young age with these bands? And was it the kind of stereotypical rock and roll lifestyle? Because you were pretty young still. I don't know how you experienced that um, differently from others who might have been a little older. It was exhausting and overwhelming. I remember, you know, not getting enough sleep, coming home from tour and, you know, sleeping for like what felt like two days straight. And yeah, it was at that point... The first tour was in a van, and it was very, you know, just bare bones. But then, then yeah, the next one we had, we had a bus, and yeah, there were there was a lot of, a lot of loud, crazy nights. But I I got tired of that really fast. Basically, during the first tour, I just wanted to 
get better as a as a guitarist and it started to drive me a little nuts that you know I was I was having a hard time finding space just to practice to to work on on music. I sort of became this hermit. Though I was always off practicing guitar and kind of off in my own world. It seems like that's what's driven you all along throughout your career was just wanting to get better and play guitar and also evolve because you in terms of the evolution like you you played in funk bands you've performed with the guys from Primus I mean and then of course you moved to New York and started focusing on jazz which I do want to ask about that because it seems to me like a huge departure but maybe it's not. Well, you know, I think I kept developing. So yes, I had this pivotal moment in my teens where I suddenly, yeah, you know, I joined a band. I'm playing local shows. Within a couple of years, I'm on tour and I'm, I'm making records. But I think I I was still developing like anybody develops. I, I've known folks in many genres of music over the years that had a metal phase. But it's you know it's something they went through when, when they were young. In my case, I just happened to be in a band that ended up going places and ha- having impact. But I think I developed just as I, w- I would otherwise, even if I'd still been you know, performing locally. And who knows? Who knows if I, I might have emerged with another type of music. But it felt very normal for me to get into different types of music. Even back then, I saw myself as a very diverse musician. I, I never wanted to be locked into one thing. And it can be a challenge sometimes because if there's any genre where you get locked in and stereotyped, it is heavy metal. Yeah, that's kind of why I was wondering if you felt any kind of imposter syndrome or anything when you were performing with jazz musicians in a totally different scene or felt like you were abandoning these people you grew up with in the Bay Area. Did any of that come about as you were evolving into being a more serious jazz player? I think I did early on, but I also recognized that I had a lot of work to do. And my ending up moving to New York, attending the new school as a student and starting over. I mean, that was a recognition that, yes, I I need a lot of work. I recognize I need a lot of work. But at the same time, you know, I, I feel like I had this music and ideas bubbling up inside me that weren't ready to come out. I needed to fill in a lot of gaps. I needed the experience of working with musicians that weren't just, um, not just the guitar electric bass format. You know, how do you play with a saxophone player? How do you play with a a piano player? It's very different. So, you know, I I knew I would need to take years to to have that experience. And uh, yeah, I I remember feeling like an imposter, you know, because, you know, what am I even doing here? I should just be this metal guy like everybody expects me to. But then the, the first times I played jazz publicly, and it, you know, it was really small, like coffee house gigs, like sitting in with friends of mine I knew that played jazz. It felt so good. I remember I, you know, playing a, a Charlie Parker tune for the first time. And this is before I had moved to New York. I was still in San Francisco, but I got invited to, to sit in. It was very low-key gig at a, at a coffee house in San Francisco. And just playing this Charlie Parker tune, I just think, Wow. This feels amazing. And I'd been struggling for a while. It felt like it it took so long to learn how to play like that. 
And suddenly just the experience of playing it live with musicians. Yeah, at this point, I'm in my 20s. Sure, I'm a little late compared to some, but I also had this technique built up from doing heavy metal. Yeah. And I just, I enjoyed it so much. I started doing these coffee house gigs whenever I could, incognito. Yeah, I wouldn't okay. like, announce it. I would just like sit in with people. I think as I, I get older, I think I'm going to be doing more of this. So I might as well make it as um, professional as I can. So the answer to that was go going back to college, which actually made my parents happy at the same time. And it was an excuse to move to New York. And I really just loved, loved New York and I needed a break from the West Coast, which ended up being a pretty much a permanent break. I was going to ask about that because I've talked to a lot of musicians who've, you know, moved around, spent lots of years in different cities. How has being in New York affected the way you consume music, the way you play music? I mean, does it feel different musically um, in those various ways than living in the Bay Area? Oh, completely. The New York that I discovered in sort of mid, the mid to late 90s, when I first started having the uh, thoughts about moving there, there was this creative energy that was intense. And I just hadn't felt that on the West Coast. I was in the surroundings that I grew up in. So that affected me. I felt stagnant. I felt like it was just this constant reminder of the past, uh, you know, the very young me. I didn't want all these memories. And when I wasn't there, and at this point I, I traveled the world, I felt energized just by being in different surroundings. So for me, just to, to get out from the place that I grew up in, that was essential. That was a major, uh, it lit a fire. You know, it, again, it's not the case with everybody. But for me, yeah, New York, it was it was just such a change of scenery. You meet people, it's not people you've known your whole life. And also just to, you know, to um, create a new identity as a musician, too. You know, not only was I introduced to the world as, you know, this uh, you know, metal guy, but just everybody in music that I knew in the San Francisco area knew me as that. So in order to really start over, uh, it took being in New York and I you know, gradually was playing with people that, you know, they knew I was in some band, but they had no idea <laughs> what it was. They didn't come from that style of music. And it was just great to meet people on, on that level, too. I want to talk about quickly about a couple other things. This um, really well-received project that you did called Planetary Coalition, which I, th I think is really cool. Um, oh, thank you. It's really interesting. And, and I think if, you know, you said, hey, this guy who, who's kind of a leader in the thrash metal scene, he brought this project together, people would be like, what? There's no way. But it's... Oh, yeah. People were shocked. Can you just tell us how it came about? I'd always wanted to do an international album. And I had had some experience kind of in the early 2000s, like after I got out of, out of the new school, I was sort of a session touring guitarist. And I worked with some groups that, you know, had like, you know, an international sound. I worked with some Israeli musicians, um, some Latin musicians. I developed this appreciation for world music. And I always thought it would be great to have an album like this that's, you know, more guitar based. I had always played a lot of acoustic guitar, but I'd realized like, I'd recorded very little of it. You know, with Testament, there's like a couple intros <laughs> that are acoustic, but that, that's about it. So gradually I, I realized, okay, the acoustic album and the international album should be one album. And, you know, it took a long time to get together. As I kept thinking about it, 
over the years, like new things happen. So one development was um, I was reached out to by Rodrigo y Gabriela, and I didn't know who they were at the time, but then I found out, oh, yeah, they're doing all the late night talk shows. They're uh, headlining over Robert Plant in Europe. They're at Lollapalooza. They're kind of a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) So they had me sit in with them, and then I developed a friendship with them. They took my trio on tour, and uh, I played on their album. So I thought, okay, well, if I decide to do this album, they owe me a favor. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'll have a really cool guest appearance on this record. Yeah, so it just built. I ended up having over two dozen people on the record. So it ended up being this international album, acoustic guitar album, major production project. And it was something that, you know, it was very unique. I just felt compelled to do it. And the folks I've met since then who've become fans of the record just love the record. So it's very gratifying to hear that because it's, yeah, it's not what anybody expected of me. You know, it's, it was a, a surprise. And it's, you know, it's not that commercial either. It's certainly, you know, it's just all about the music. So it's, it's something I'm really proud of. I may do uh, a sequel one day. You've been making albums, and we didn't mention the Alex Skolnick trio, which which you've made a bunch of records with, and and all along you've been making records with Testament as well, and doing other projects. So you're you're obviously someone who you know wants to keep varied, but also stay busy. <laughs> yeah, oh for sure. Um, there was a a long period where I wasn't with Testament. I mean, almost fifteen years. I left in the early '90s, and um, by the end of the decade, I was in New York. I rejoined Testament, and at the time, it wasn't even clear that there would be this resurgence, sort of in the mid-2000s. By the late 2000s, we'd been offered a tour with um, Motorhead, Judas Priest, and Heaven and Hell. So then the band really came back after that. And then bands that had come around since then, like Lamb of God and and others, uh, we started playing with. And it just uh, got revitalized. But yeah, there was a period where I was just doing my instrumental stuff and just being you know, a session guitarist. But the trio was my main vehicle. And that started while I was at the new school. So I knew I wanted to do instrumental stuff. Um, yeah, th- you know, there's always pressure. I was sort of expected to do an instrumental album, like maybe like the metal version of Satriani which I just had no interest in doing. And, um, you know, I wanted to do what, what felt right. And I wanted to do a, I guess, a, you know, you could call it a, a jazz guitar album. But, of course, you know, I, I have this background that includes, you know, this music I grew up on was like Kiss, The Scorpions, and Aerosmith. So I yeah. thought, well, you know, I'll bet there's a way to work that into the jazz guitar stuff. Now, originally it started with quoting, you know, our soloists have been quoting forever. Charlie Parker would quote Pop Goes the Weasel, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, or he'd mm-hmm. quote one standard and within another standard. That's been going on forever. And occasionally I would quote a rock or, or metal song. And then I, I started realizing there's a way to make this work. And I, I really thought, OK, this is going to be the first thing I do. I've, I knew I had a long way to go still. But that album, it ended up in the jazz radio charts. It got massive airplay. It was a full-page feature in Billboard. So I I was kind of shocked by the the reception of that. Uh, Since then, I've leaned more towards original music. The latest album is called Conundrum. 
and it's um, all original except for a, um, a classical piece by uh, Satier, which is one of the tunes I'm doing for uh, this solo performance. That's cool. Yeah. And I've noticed those covers kind of sprinkled in throughout the trio records. It's cool. And it it speaks to kind of like people are really amazed and pleased, I think, when genres intersect in ways that they're not used to. Our roots are in like the jam band world. And, you know, there's a lot of jam band and jazz, you know, crossover and there's jam band and hip hop crossover. And I mean, jam band music in general is fairly open ended um, as it just is really defined as improvisationally driven music. Right. So it could encompass anything. But in the more recent years, it's started to blend a little bit more. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I, I heard yeah, I heard your interview with uh, Eric Krasno, and who I, I don't know personally, but I related to a lot of what he said. You know, these expectations. You know, like wait, you're supposed to be the hip hop guy. What are you doing playing guitar on like you know dead influence music or whatever? But yeah, interestingly, yeah, some of the jam band stuff was pretty influential as far as just showing me that you could do more than one thing. You know, like Aquarium Rescue Unit for example. Yeah, I was majorly influenced by them. That first live recording, the self-titled one, Colonel Bruce Hampton and the Aquarium Rescue Unit. You know, it's just total bluegrass into total funk, into rock, into like psychedelia. I just I just love that. And maybe the fact that you couldn't label it so easily, maybe that was a, um, a hindrance business-wise. But as a musician, I loved it. I, I've met Jimmy Herring. You know, we know each other. He's a lo- yeah, he was one of my favorite guitarists. Such a great guy. And he would tell me that you know they would, um, you know, they'd support these some of these bigger acts, and some of the the headliners would be on the phone like yelling at their record labels, you know, trying to get them to to give a chance to ARU. What's your problem? What, you know, they're just one of those bands like. Uh, musicians love them and somehow the business just didn't get behind them i do want to ask about the podcast because you started a podcast called moods and modes what made you want to start one well, it's been brewing for years and years. I mean, over the years, you know, with different projects I've been involved with, I always thought it would be so fun to capture some of this, um, not just the, the interaction, but also the, you know, the jamming. Like some of my favorite music, you know, it's not the album that's released. It's, it's the sound check or the... <laughs> so, you know, it was a combination of things. It was wanting to share those types of jam sessions uh, but also to like tell stories in a unique way. Um, yeah, I've become a big listener of podcasts. I'm a, a fan. Mm-hmm. Many, but I've also I've been mm-hmm. a fan of um, shows like This American Life. You know, like sort of radio stories. I guess is the genre. Yeah. And I, you know, I know what my strengths are. Like, I'm not the best one-on-one conversationalist. Like, maybe I'm. Do- hopefully, I'm doing okay here. But I, I couldn't see myself doing like a Joe Rogan type podcast where you just talk the whole time. That's a different genre. And I feel like there's guys that are so good at that. But I realized just with the different types of music that I play and you know the, the musicians that I know, I could do some of that, but also blend it with storytelling and um, 
Like the first episode is about uh, Matt Umanov, who's this great guitar repairman and repairman to the stars. You know, he does guitars for Clapton, and he's a real character. And I was getting my guitars repaired, and I just it just hit me. I'm like, oh my god, can I record you? <laughs> this is insane. This is golden. And I just realized, okay, I'm <laughs> we're gonna kick off the podcast with this. Yeah, the content it just keeps creating itself. And it's also, it's a chance for me to do all types of music. Like the, the latest one is uh, with my friend Nir Felder, who's played for Eric Badu. Yeah. And, he, and he's a very good improviser. So, and there's another episode with this Indian guitarist Prasanna. And um, yeah, it's a way to do music, but totally separate from doing an album and separate from what some might expect from me. It's definitely not a metal podcast. There's no need for that. There's no shortage of that. (laughs) (laughs) I should have mentioned earlier that Testament did put out a new album this year that was really well received. And it seems like kind of what people wanted right now was just like it had a classic kind of feel to it for your music. Yeah, it's called Titans of Creation. And we were supposed to be touring for that. (laughs) So Titans of Creation came out. Was that out there before the pandemic or after? I think that Almost came out right, right exactly after, right? the same time. Okay. Um, so we did a tour in Europe early in the year, and things were just starting to change. And it's it's actually kind of amazing that we only had two shows canceled. But by the time this tour finished, it was March, and then the album came out right as we got back. So it was like, but you know, you got you have to look on the bright side and. One thing that came up was uh, the pandemic video, you know, that that whole concept of the the quarantine jam. And I did um, the first one I did was a song by Rush. And it was with Charlie Benante from Anthrax and Rod Diaz from Suicidal Tendencies. And we ended up doing four Rush songs and they're all on my YouTube channel. And the other guys' channels as well. And I, I did some others as well. And I did some Queen songs. I did this Queen tune that um, Brian May shared it and specifically commented on the guitar playing, which was like a big thrill. That's amazing. We'll link to all that stuff because I want people to be able to, to see it if they haven't yet. Cool. And then the podcast, Moods and Modes. I sort of got the point. I've been gathering content for like a couple years, but I was, and I was really at that point. Okay, dude, (laughs) get this thing launched. But because I wasn't constantly touring and I was, I was able to really dive into the quality of it. So I've talked with a lot of artists about this idea of working towards something, then achieving it, and then realizing it's not actually the thing that you wanted to do. Does that apply to you? Yeah, that's so true in some of the, you know, the, the ways I'm identified. Part of it, it's just people's expectations. I emerged in a genre where, you know, it's normal to be covered in tattoos and, like, have a certain look and pretty much only do that music. It can be a shock that somebody, you know, is actually diverse and has other interests, but also loves doing, doing that music as well. It's a proud part of what I do, but it's not, not the only thing. And then emerging from that music as sort of, you know, a technical guitarist. Like, that was a shock at one time. What is this guy doing in a a band that's influenced by, like, Motorhead and Slayer? Why is he doing technical guitar playing? Well, now that's accepted. 
so yeah there there are these there are these stereotypes um yeah luckily after so many years my trio is doing when we play clubs it's more common that we'll play an appropriate venue such as you know the iridium in new york the blue note in milan yoshi's in oakland these are all established desks but every now and then we'll get put into some dingy rock club where they don't know how to mix an upright bass they'll have a, a support act they have like walls of Marshall amps and you know this giant drum kit with like three kick drums and yeah. I've had this talk with promoters like, do you guys even know what we sound like? Yeah, you're the guitarist from Testament, right? Yeah, yes, but this has nothing this to do with that. that. This isn't, this isn't that. <laughs> so anyway, it finally, is. finally, like yeah. that's that's starting to uh, change. Like people, oh, people can look at me, at Alex Kolnick, and they, oh yeah. Okay, yes, he does that, but he all, there's so much more. That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing all this with us. It's been awesome, and we've kept you for way longer than, than we said we would, so we appreciate you hanging out and, and talking and telling your story. Oh, it's my pleasure. I enjoy the podcast, and uh, it's, fun to, it's fun to talk about this stuff. For people listening, stick around, because you're going to hear some live tracks from, from Alex. So thank you, and thank you, Alex, again for, for joining. Man, my pleasure. Thank you. Th thanks, everyone listening. One quick note before we hear Alex's performance. His podcast, Moods and Modes, is now part of the Osiris family. We're really glad to have him on board. The next episode will be live on November 5th. You can subscribe to Moods and Modes wherever you get your podcasts. And now here's Alex performing Unbound, Gymnopedia, and Beth by Kiss.
Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. 